the subject that we're going to look at in the next two days comes under the title Last Day Events. Some theologians would argue that we have been living in the last days ever since Jesus died on the cross. Where sometimes we often think the last days is now. Or sometimes we think, well, the last days, that's not just yet. That's right at the very end. Now, in these presentations we're going to be doing, we'll see that the last days, I believe, covers the timing that we're living in. But we're going to focus specifically on some of those events that I believe will take place right prior to Jesus' return. But some of those events that take place right prior to Jesus' return are dependent, so to speak, on what takes place now in the present. Does that make sense? Maybe, maybe not. Hopefully it will become more, more clear as we go on. The subjects that we're going to cover, um, not necessarily in this order, we're going to look at what are the three angels' messages, a brief overview, the three angels' message. Revelation 14, verse 6 to 12, talks of three angels. It's the last place, really, that we have the, the messages, a last message given in the Bible. So we'll look at the three angels' message. Then we're going to look at subjects of the latter rain, the loud cry, the shaking. We will look at the time of trouble. I think the time of trouble is often misunderstood a lot in our church. And I think we often, yeah, anyway, we'll get to that. We misunderstand it a lot and misuse that doctrine a lot in our church. We'll also look at time of trouble and God's people delivered, how God delivers his people at the, at the very end. So, If I speak too fast, please tell me to slow down. If you would like me to repeat something, please say rewind. And if I'm boring you, please say fast forward. And I'll move ahead. But, lastly, events. To bow our heads as we start with a word of prayer, Father in heaven. We thank you for the privilege that we have to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to look into it. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would guide us, and that you would bless us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a text in the Bible that I referred to when I was introducing this seminar. It comes from first uh, no, clicker's not on. It comes from First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. First Chronicles 12 and verse 32. And the Bible says, "And the children of Issachar." which were men that had understanding of the what? Times. To know what Israel ought to do. And this is a general principle of life. If you know the time that you're living in, if you know what is taking place at that time, you can adjust your life accordingly to what's taking place. These men of Israel, they knew what was taking place, therefore they knew what they ought to do. Pastor Benjamin Ung gave a powerful message yesterday for um, Sabbath school where he was talking about the times that we live in and based on an understanding of the times we live in, the signs that point Jesus is coming soon should change the way that we live our lives. In Romans 13 verse 11, another text that deals, I believe, with the times in which we live, it says, and that knowing the time... That it is now, what's the next word say? High. What does it mean when it says high time? We don't use that term too often in the English language, do we? Every now and then we might use it. But it, it, it's, when they say it's high time to awake out of sleep, another way that we could say that right now is it's the right time. It's the best time. It should happen right now. It's high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And another text that we read is this, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. The Bible says, the secret things belong to who? Belong unto God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Now, I want to say this when we talk about the subject of last day events, or final events, whichever way, whichever way you want to put it. 
Final events, last day event, is often one of the most speculative things that is studied in Christianity. And to make it relevant to this context, in Adventism. It is one of the most speculative areas of study. And the reason why is this. Sometimes you may hear of a preacher, quote-unquote, that gets known as being a preacher that focuses on last-day events. Now, I'll speak from my experience as a preacher, and I will say this. It's always a dangerous thing to be known as a last-day events preacher. And the reason why is this. Because it tends to generate in your audience a desire to hear something new. But generally in society, we have... We have a cultural desire to always hear something new. It's a general thing. You know, Apple said think different. And so we all try and think different all the time. And so if you're a last day events person, now it could be a preacher or a Bible studier, this is the, the problem you may get into. This is the warning I'll give before we go into it. Let's say you spend the next six months studying all the last day events you can. And you get convicted, wow, this is powerful. Jesus is coming soon. And you've studied all of this. The challenge is this. If you want to go, quote, unquote, deeper, what you tend to do, what you tend to see happen, is people then start looking at a lot more nebulous, vague areas to try and pull something concrete out of something that's not there. And we can get down the track where we're observing the world as the time clock for Jesus' return. In the sense that we get obsessed with watching American politics, or we get obsessed with watching all these things that we know are prophetically important, but ultimately it's knowledge and it's not experience. So a studying of prophecy should change the way you live. It should give you faith. One of the biggest reasons why people say, how do you know the Bible is true? I can say, well, I've studied the prophecies and I know. I know there's, there's concrete things that were prophesied that happened that gives me a foundation that cannot be shaken, that I know the Bible can be trusted. I know Jesus is real. Prophecy should do that to us, but it should also inspire us to give us an experience with Jesus Christ as well. We're told the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. There are certain things that we may never know. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. That's hard for us to come to and accept as um, proud Seventh day Adventists. But I think there are certain things that we may never know in the writings of the Bible before Jesus comes. And so don't spend your time going down those alleys. Know the pillars of Daniel and Revelation. Know the key things. Know where they are, but recognize there are certain secret things. Don't go down there. In, um, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, let's turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, See, when we study last-day events, we should only study what is clearly revealed. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his what? Own power. There are certain things that we just won't know. And we must accept that and be humble that that is the case. Certain things we may not know. We'll know them in heaven. God has told us the things reveal they belong to us and the children forever. Okay? Okay. So we are living in a time when the final message is to be given. And the question is, what message is to be given in the day in which we live? What message? Which message is the final message? Jesus the creator, okay. My apologies. 
I'm still quite not, I'm still quite not used to Malaysian English. Three angels. Three angels. Matthew 24 says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto who? All nations, and then shall the end come. Now, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, in some ways, are a microcosm of the book of Revelation. Jesus gives this big, long sermon, and within this sermon, he has a verse where he says, This gospel shall be preached to all the world, to every nation, and then shall the end come. Now, in Revelation, we have another gospel, as Brother Sebastian pointed out, where it talks about another gospel going to all the world and all the nations. Revelation 14, verse 6. If you turn there, or you can memorize it in your head if you know it off by heart. Revelation 14, verse 6, the Bible says. Revelation 14, verse 6. How does it start? Somebody. Then I saw a what? Another angel flying where? In the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Having the everlasting gospel. To preach to who? Every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every people. Saying with a loud voice, verse 7, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship him that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. This, I believe, is the final message that will go to all the world. Now, <coughs> notice here. The judgment is spoken of not as coming, but as what? Having come. So in Revelation 14, verse 7, it's linked with Daniel chapter 8, 14. If, you, if you've not studied that before, then please do. But if you have, then you'll understand. Daniel 8.14 gives us the time that the judgment will take place. Daniel 8.14. Can someone quote that for us? Unto 2,000 what? Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel chapter 8.14 gives the time. It tells us when. 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Revelation 14 verse 7 gives us the message that will be given at the time of judgment. Let's just go back a verse. It says, let's go back. It says, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment, what? Is come. And what? Worship him that made the heaven and goes on. So Daniel 8, 14 gives the time. Revelation 14, 7 gives us the message that we should deliver at that time. The time is 1844, the message, or sorry, the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary. When Jesus started his final atonement in the heavenly sanctuary. There was three phases of Jesus' ministry. There was the cross, there was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. Jesus had completed the cross, the courtyard on earth. He then went to the holy place from AD 31 to 1844. He then moved into the most holy place to complete the final phase of the atonement, the final phase of the atonement. Now, as a result of such a message, a group of people are brought together. Notice this, in Revelation 14, turn there in Revelation 14 if you're not there. In Revelation 14, notice what you have. You have three messages, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And then as a result of that, you see what type of people are brought together. Verse 12 says, here is the what? Patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Yeah. So as a result of these messages, it was David, he was just checking that my recorder was working. As a result of these messages, at the end, you have a group of people that the purpose of the message should be to produce a, a group of people who what? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. When you and I study Bible prophecy, especially end time events, that should be the result in our experience. It should not be that when we study Bible prophecy, we become more argumentative. 
It should not be that when we study Bible prophecy, we become more arrogant, we become more dogmatic, we become more whatever. When we study prophecy, final events, the three angels' message, it should produce righteousness in us. It should not produce us being willing. <laughs> Have any of you seen religious people that are willing to be unreligious to defend something that's religious? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, let me give you an example that's very extreme that you and I don't have to necessarily relate to. I don't know if you have this here in Malaysia, but we have this in the UK. But I'm guessing you probably have this in Malaysia because it's a predominantly Muslim country. Where you, we don't have it on a small scales in, in England. Occasionally it hits the news and it's big news because it's kind of against the grain of society. Where a young lady, for example, may have decided to go and be with a man her family don't agree her to be with. And so in order to respect the honor of their family, I don't know if you have this here. Yes, no? Honor killings? No? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's, I don't know, whatever. Maybe it's a different country that it comes off more. But anyway, in the Pakistani community in England, India, India to respect the honor of the family, they will kill the family member, to maintain their honor as a family. And it's a religious motive that drives that. Sometime in church, you may have seen, God forbid, church people arguing vehemently about points, minute points. One time I was doing a youth meeting, and we had a preacher there. It was, um, it was actually Randy Skeet. And we had adult meetings and youth meetings. And i never forget this. Because there was only 400 seats in the youth hall. And so we only wanted the youth to be in the youth hall. Because if the youth don't go in the youth hall, they're not going to go to the adult hall. So we wanted to make sure that only the youth got in the youth hall. But there was a lot of adults that wanted to go in the youth hall too. Now, I don't know if we did the right thing. But we, wanted, we put people at the door to make sure that only the youth got in the youth meeting. And the, and the adults didn't. Not that we were being mean to the adults, but we wanted to make sure that the youth heard the youth speaker. I tell you, the different shades of Adventism that were seen in the adults at the door, people were willing to fight to get in to hear the sermon. They never actually did, but it's like, you better get out of my way. I want to go hear the... Like, you're willing to fight to get your blessing. And maybe you've seen similar things in, on a smaller scale. The point is, when we study prophecy, Revelation 14, verse 12, the end result should be that it produces in us the patience of the... If it doesn't, then maybe the problem with us is the problem of Laodicea. What is the problem with Laodicea? Revelation 3, verse um, 15 to 20. The problem with Laodicea is this. They say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of... Nothing. The problem with Laodicea is they're, they're rich. The problem is they know they're rich. Now, it's very rare to meet a rich person that knows they're rich. Most rich people always compare themselves to other rich people, and they feel like, I still need a bit more, generally speaking. Now, there are not always. But Laodicea knows they're rich. And, and the problem with Laodicea is, is, not, a, is not a problem of knowledge. Now, us as, as, as Seventh-day Adventists today, us as Laodiceans today, the problem with us is that we have this fixation with knowledge, which is this. Yet, we hear a subject and we're like, I know that. We hear another subject, yeah, I know that. We hear about things like, for example, like preach this morning, the cross. Oh, the cross? Yeah, I know that. Check. Yeah, crucifixion. Yeah, Ellen White says meditate for an hour on the closing scenes of Christ. Yep, got that. Done. Daniel, yep, got that. Done. And we have this, this deep desire it is to have something new. If the preacher doesn't bring new material, it's not good. The problem is not always with the preacher. The problem's with us, oftentimes. You know, how many times in church have you heard people pray this prayer? Lord, teach us something new from your word. 
Lord, bring something out in your word that we've never seen before. Now, I understand the concept that bread needs to be fresh or that, you know, material needs to be fresh. But it's not always fresh in the sense of something new. It's fresh in the experience that we have with it. The study of prophecy, the study of the Bible, as we're looking at last day events, it should be such that it changes our experience as we go through it. If you've studied the three angels' message before, and you think, ah, three angels' message, ah, da, 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 blah, 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 blah. Maybe you need a new experience with that message, not a knowledge of the message. Now, these people, Revelation 14, verse 12, what happens? We come down to verse 14. And in verse 14, what happens? Verse 14, are these people ready for Jesus to come? Yes, because in verse 14, and I looked. You know, the three years of the message really should end in verse 15, not verse 12, in some ways. Because verse 13, 14, and 15 gives you kind of the end result. And verse 14 says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's coming with a crown on his head and a sickle to reap the harvest. That's the imagery that is being used there. He's a farmer reaping the harvest. So the result of the message of the three angels is it produces patience in the saints, which means that when Jesus comes, he's ready to reap his harvest. This is kind of the sequence that we see here in Revelation 14 there. We have the last day message for the last day people. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to go to each message, and we're looking at when it was originally preached and the context of it, and if it's still applicable today. Because all of these messages have a point in time when they were preached. For example, Noah's message was preached in Noah's day. The three angels' message, we preached them today, but the question I'm asking at this point in the presentation is, when were they originally preached? Because the three angels' message were not originally preached by, for example, the disciples. They were not originally preached by Martin Luther or by John Knox. When was the original context of the three angels' message? Now, we see all of these three angels... They have a historical fulfillment. All of these messages, number one, two, and three, has a historical fulfillment around the year 1844 when they were first preached. And then we can, and we can locate them to certain events and periods. Some of them are still future, okay? So what time does this workshop end? 11 o'clock. And then we have a break and then we have another one? That again. Okay, thank you. <coughs> so, now the judgment hour message points to the time of 1844. Which time in 1844? Well, it's October 22. Now, you know the story. They thought that Jesus was coming to the earth. They thought the sanctuary was the earth, and the cleansing of the sanctuary was the fire that would clean the earth up. That's what they thought. Now, in hindsight, Hindsight is always 2020. We know that they were wrong. They also realized that they were wrong. Some of them did. So this couldn't really happen. What, for what reason could this not happen? What's the primary reason why this could not happen that we use as an Adventist church to defend the teaching of the judgment? Why does this not make sense? Logically and biblically. Number, reason number one, that it's good for you to have in your mind to use when you're talking with other people. But I'm, I'm kind of looking, maybe my question's not clear, so I'll, I'll, move, I'll kind of go on. The, the, the reason why is this. Revelation 22, verse 11 to 12, gives us a great principle, and that is this, that prior to Jesus coming, there must be investigation first. Jesus doesn't judge when he comes. He judges prior to coming, and then he comes. Revelation 22, verse 11 is the verse that says, He that is filthy, let him be filthy, what? Still, he that is, don't know exactly, he that, is, he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. What the verse says is that if there comes a time when the righteous will stay righteous and the unrighteous will stay unrighteous. In other words, there comes a time when the judgment has been set and done and completed. Then verse 12 says, and behold, I come quickly, and my, key word, 
reward is with me. You can only give a reward if you have already determined ahead of time who gets the reward. This is the key principle in the subject of the judgment. And it's a key foundational principle in our Adventist teaching of the judgment. That Jesus cannot come prior to the judgment. Many Christian churches say when Jesus comes, he will judge as he comes. Mm -mm. There is investigation before come. Before they come. Same in, kind of the same in the court scene today. There's an investigation first that takes place. Now, in the 1840s, what was happening in the world at large? Religiously speaking. In context with this message. There was a worldwide awakening taking place, wasn't there? We call it the Great Advent Movement. Now, as Adventists, we often read the history of William Miller in America. Okay? We often read his history. He's the most famous of the preachers. But there were many other preachers who were also preaching the return of Jesus at, around that time. You had, in England, you had a man by the name of Edward Irving, Irvine, Irving, I forget which one it is, who was preaching the return of Jesus. In, I believe it was Germany, you had a man called Johann Bengel. There was another one called Manuel de la Cunza. There were different ones, some in South America. In fact, Manuel de la Cunza was a Jesuit priest. William Miller was a Methodist. Was he, oh, Baptist, sorry, thank you, Baptist. Then you had different, so the point was, there was an awakening taking place in all different denominations. It wasn't limited to one denomination. Okay? They were, he was preaching about the second coming. That's all he was preaching about. Even though he was preaching Daniel 8.14, which is the key text for us as the sanctuary, he wasn't preaching about the sanctuary. He wasn't preaching about the Sabbath. He wasn't preaching about the state of the dead. He wasn't preaching about the spirit of prophecy. He wasn't preaching about any of that. He was just preaching about the second coming. Now, he was correct in his dates. Amen? He was correct in his dates that Jesus was near. They had looked at the signs, the dark day in 1780, when the moon darkened as well. They looked at the date when the stars fell, November the 18th. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to live on that night? Stars are falling. You read it in, in Revelation chapter 6. Wow. Revelation 6 is happening. Prophecy. So they see all this taking place. They were correct in their preaching that the coming of Jesus was near. Now thousands of people accepted the message and looked for Jesus to come very, very shortly. Now I believe this. The statement there on the screen. I believe God intended that the judgment, excuse me, that began in 18, 1844 was to usher in the last events. Bang, bang, bang. I don't believe God intended us as an Adventist church to be celebrating 150 years of our church. For us to be celebrating 170 years since 1844, this year. I don't believe that was his intention. That 170 years on, we would still be here. I believe his original purpose, plan A, was bang. One, two, three, and it would happen very quickly. Unfortunately, this year we had the 170th anniversary of October 22, 1840. Now, historically speaking, the believers at the time, they expected Jesus to arrive in the spring of 1844. Okay? So originally, all these guys... They said, Jesus is coming in the spring of 1844. Now, when this did not happen, it produced a disappointment. It wasn't <coughs> the great disappointment, but it produced a disappointment. Now, in the summer, light came pointing that it would not run out until October 22. Now, even William Miller, William Miller didn't take the date of October 22 until about September, like one month before. So they just said the spring. They weren't given any particular date. They just said the spring. Now, in the summer... After they'd been disappointed, um, they, they had a new date, October 22. Now, what happened was this. What happened with this? The next angel is Revelation 14, verse 8, where it says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, this message historically was given in the summer of 1844. Why? The reason why this message was given in the summer of 1844 is this. Think about this. 
If you've just heard this message that Jesus is coming in the spring next year, he's coming next April, March, at the latest May. And March, April, May passes and he doesn't come. Now, let's say you don't really believe this message, but you're like, you don't want to disregard it completely in case it's right. You're kind of like hedging your bets. Well, not really, but maybe. And then he doesn't come by May the 30th or 31st, however many days in May. What that does to you, if you don't really believe Jesus is coming, it emboldens your doubt. So what happens is this. Particularly the message of Babylon is fallen was given in the summer of 1844. Why? You see, from 1830 to 1844, many Protestant churches opened their doors. Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Episcopalian Church of England, Presbyterians. They all opened. Nobody wanted to start a new church. Why do we need to start a new church? Because Jesus is coming. So everyone in every church should be happy Jesus is coming. That's the reasoning. It makes sense too. No new church. Revive your own church. When Jesus doesn't come though, what happened is that the leaders in the Protestant churches, the leaders in the Protestant churches started to reject the message of Jesus coming. And in the summer, it brought a separation between those who accepted the message and those who rejected the message. See, after the spring of 1844, the doubters were emboldened. They said, huh, didn't think he was going to come. He didn't come. Bam! All of you guys preaching he should come out of our church. People got disfellowshipped for believing in the second coming of Jesus. From Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian churches. Ellen White was disfellowshipped. I mean, that's like disfellowshipping an Adventist for believing the Sabbath. To disfellowship a Christian for believing in the second coming. During the summer months, a great deal of opposition to the message arose, and so there came a cry. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Babylon applied to the confused state of organized religion. Now, Babylon means confusion, and I believe Babylon represents confusion in Christianity in the sense that when we look at a Christian church today and we say that, do you believe in the second coming? Yes. And we say, do you believe, um, uh, for example, you believe in the second coming? Yes. Uh, you go to a funeral? And when they go to a funeral, they say, this dead person is in heaven. You're like, okay. And then the, pa- the preacher at the funeral says, when Jesus comes, he's going to resurrect this person. You're like, okay. So he's, gonna, he's in heaven, but he's going to get resurrected. Is that confusing, yes or no? It's very confusing. It doesn't make sense. The body's here, but the preacher says the body's in heaven. The person's in heaven. And then the preacher says, when Jesus comes, he'll resurrect. They're like... How can he resurrect a body that's here, that's there, and doesn't, huh? It's confusing. Babylon means religious confusion. Now, in this context, Babylon meaning religious confusion is this. You believe Jesus is coming, and you're just fellowshipping people for believing in the second coming? That's confusing. That's confusion. You're contradicting what you believe. As an Adventist church, we have we have as an Adventist church, this is kind of aside from this, we have not, <coughs> we don't have a list of doctrinal beliefs. Listen carefully. We do not have a list of doctrinal beliefs as an Adventist church. I know we have 28 fundamentals. Big deal. But we don't have a list of doctrinal beliefs as other churches. What we have as an Adventist church is a system of beliefs. A system is different from a list. If you go to the Baptist church, we believe Jesus is coming again. We believe when he comes, there'll be a resurrection. We believe when the dead die, they go to heaven. Confusion. It's a list that makes no sense. All of it together. Every piece doesn't match with the other piece. It's like a puzzle where the pieces don't match. In the Adventist church, the beauty of the Adventist message, and this is why I love the Adventist message so clear, is that the teaching we have on the second coming matches logically with the teaching on death, with the teaching on the millennium, with the teaching on the resurrection. The belief we have on hellfire matches with the millennium, it matches with the second coming, it matches with the judgment. You know, nothing contradicts another teaching. It all systemizes together. Anyway, back to the presentation. 
back to this point, hundreds of people were disfellowshipped. Hundreds disfellowshipped for believing in the second coming of Jesus. So you see the progression. They preach Jesus' return. He doesn't come. People get emboldened to doubt. Then they get disfellowshipped for believing in Jesus' return. Now, three messages are preached in the summer of 1844. The three messages are these. The hour of judgment is come. That's one message. They also preached the midnight cry message. And they also preached Babylon is fallen. These three messages they preached. The result of this was unity amongst the believers, separation from those who didn't want to believe, confession amongst the believers, humbling of heart, brotherly love. You know, I would love to have lived during that time of earth's history. I know what happened will happen prior to Christ's return will be better, but I know that that was a high time in Christian history. People were actually confessing their sin. Communion service was not just a formality, it was real. You know, all too often in our churches, communion is a race against time to finish before 1 o'clock or 12.30 or whatever the holy time in your church is when church has to finish. As opposed to really being a time when believers experience the humbling act of communion and confess prior to communion. All of these things took place. Now, don't you think it's interesting? We have always missed Jesus as human race. Jesus did not come to earth, but he went to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. And notice this point. No one looking for him was looking for him, excuse my broken English, where he was. It's nothing new. When Jesus came to the cross in AD 31, people were expecting him to go to his throne. When he went to his throne in AD 1844, people expected him to come to earth. Both key dates in the atonement history of the universe, humanity has missed where Jesus is coming. Missed where Jesus should be. Okay? And notice the point. Without the cross, there can be no kingdom. Without the judgment, there is no blotting out of sin. Before Jesus comes, all sin must be blotted out. Amen? Amen. All sin of the righteous must be blotted out prior to his coming. Therefore, he cannot come until the judgment is finished. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, now, follow this. Historically, what doctrine was preached that I say earlier in around the 1840s, before 1844, what doctrine was preached by William Miller? Second coming. Did they preach a Sabbath, yes or no? Did they preach a state of the dead? No. Did they preach the sanctuary? No. But soon after, an understanding about the Sabbath and the sanctuary came amongst God's true followers. Soon after. The understanding about the sanctuary came around 1846. And then carried on after. You know, you know something? It's kind of a side note. William Miller never accepted the Sabbath. Did you know that? He was told about the Sabbath, and he never accepted it. I'm so glad God is the judge. Amen? Because if we were the judge, told him, didn't take it. The mitigating factor is this. At the last two or three years of his life, he had lost his eyesight. He wasn't able to read for himself. And he relied on his associates who read to him and kind of, you know, 
read whatever they read to him. And I believe God knows that if William Miller had studied the Sabbath with the same intensity that he studied the sanctuary, if he was able to, he would definitely have accepted it. No questions asked. And we're told that an angel watches the dust of the precious servant of God and will call him forward at the last day. We're told he will be in heaven. Which to me is it's just beautiful. When you look at the judgment of God, that someone may have rejected something that we think is vital, but God takes into account the mitigating factors and says, he's still going to be in heaven. I know his heart. Amen? Now, so soon after came another thing about the Sabbath in the sanctuary. How? Why? Because as they studied the sanctuary, what did they see? They saw the most holy place. As they saw the most holy place, what did they see? The Ark of the Covenant. As they see the Ark of the Covenant, they see the law. And as they see the law, they see the Sabbath. You see how it flows? Sanctuary, law, Sabbath. That's why personally, when I do my evangelistic series and when I do my Bible studies, I always study the sanctuary first. Then I do the law of God. Then I do the Sabbath. I believe it flows in in logical sequence and order. I want people to understand that they're making a decision on the law of God in light of the sanctuary. I want people to understand that the decision they are making whether to keep the Sabbath or not is in light of the judgment. It's not just a flippant decision that you can just make if you have a preference. There's a judgment taking place that guides and molds that decision. Now, there is a need for a company of people to be developed in whose hearts they could stand, in whose hearts that God's law could be written. Revelation 14, verse 12. This is still true. In Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This, I believe, is still true. It was true then, and it is still true today. Now, the work of this message is still to develop these people in whose heart the law of God is fully written. Is that work completed yet, yes or no? No, it's not completed yet. God still needs a people in whose heart the law of God is fully written. Not a people in whose church has on their doctrine creed the three angels' message. He's already got that. He needs the people in whose heart the law of God is written. Is the law of God written on your heart? Does it guide and mold what you do? Can Revelation 14 verse 12 truly be said about you this morning? Here is the patience (coughs) of the saints. Do we have that patience in our spiritual experience? You find if you have patience when you have someone that's in your way when you need to get somewhere, do you have patience then? You know, my wife has been teaching me a bit about patience since I got married. Now, I come from England. There's one thing in England that is almost sacred. Does anyone know what it is? Apart from drinking tea. Hmm? Anyone? What is almost a sacred thing to English people? (laughs) Swearing? What kind of Brits come over here, man? (laughs) You said beer and you said swearing. I'm like, oh my goodness, man. Punctuality. (coughs) Yeah, it is, but there's something almost connected to that that is like, almost, it's like, an English person, it's like, that's, Right. For example, let me say, it is queuing. Use the word queuing here? Standing in line? Queuing. You know, even if you go to a pub or a bar in England, I'm not saying you should, but if you go to a pub or a bar in England, there is no queue at the bar. It's the job of the barman, and they do an extremely efficient job of this, of knowing who comes in what order. So there'd be a whole crowd gathered there, and the barman's job, and he cannot break the sequence. Mm-mm. That's problems. He knows that she came, then he came, then it was him. And they, and they serve always in the order. They just keep, a, a, yep, yep, yep. And so even if you're there, which I've noticed a little bit here in Malaysia, people like to push to the front. Even if you come and push your way to the counter, if the person standing there came before you, the barman will always be like, yep, you first. It's their job to keep order. Like, 
And so in England, when you come and stand in line, now I'm telling you this story because it's, it's taught me something about patience. Like, I was at the hotel, just the hotel there, and we had to wait for something to our room. And I'm standing there in line. The lady is accountant there, and I'm standing here. Another lady comes. Where should she stand? Behind me. I'm in line. Where does she go? She walks straight to the counter, holding a thing, waving at the person. My blood is boiling in me. Because this is like the fourth time it's happened to me here in Southeast Asia. I'm like, ah. Because at the airport it happened too, and like someone guy was standing at the counter, and I've been waiting all in line. He pushed his way all the way to the front, and as I'm about to give my passport, he hands his passport to the guy. Got two. I said, I was here first. <laughs> the guy's like, and, and the guy at the front's like, oh, who do I go to? I said, he pushed. <laughs> you know, my wife has tapping me. You know, it's okay, it's okay. I'm like, no, I'm English. This is a queue. We should wait in line. She's like, you're a Christian before you're English. I was like, I said, I don't. <laughs> anyway, so I've been learning patience. You know, patience. It's not just enough knowing and reciting Revelation 14 verse 12. Do we have the patience in our heart when someone pushes in front of us in line? When someone cuts us off on the road? When we're on the lift and people walk in front of us to get on it, even though we were standing right at the door? patience, you know. God is looking for a people in whose heart the law of God is fully written. Now, the third message unlocks their disappointment. See, Jesus had appeared before the Ancient of Days to engage in the investigative judgment, and they started to understand the whole concept of the judgment, the preparation to blot out sin, that there was a parallel work of preparation needed in the people of God below. And so, as they understood the sanctuary, now the message started to come in its clarity. See, the first message that Christ gave to the Adventist church was the message, or the Advent movement, was the message of the second coming. Then they saw the law. Then they saw the Sabbath. And when they first saw the Sabbath, you know, they didn't understand the Sabbath then as we know now. They understood the Sabbath, and there was a big debate in the early Advent church, when do you keep the Sabbath? When did you keep it? Midnight to midnight? And they, 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 they discussed it as an Advent believers, and they came to the conclusion that you keep the Sabbath from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. They did that for 10 years, all through the 1950s. It was in 1959 that the Advent believers said, let's have a study on when we should keep the Sabbath. And J.N. Andrews was commissioned by the Advent believers to come together with a study. J.N. Andrews was an intelligent man, and he came up with 14 Bible passages that we use today to determine when the Sabbath starts and when it finishes. He wasn't even able to present it at the, at the committee. They read the report, and they said, let's keep that. It was voted unanimously, except for two votes. You know who those two votes were? James White and Ellen White. They said, no, we've done 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. for 10 years. We'll keep doing 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. This white, it tells me that Ellen White was human, amen? I'm not saying that to say she wasn't a prophet, no, because that very night, God gave her a vision and told her what the brethren studied is bang on right. This is what we should do, the direction for the church. You know, sometimes she ratified things before, sometimes she ratified things afterwards. And then we did sunset to sunset. But God led his people gradually, bit by bit, step by step. And while there was a preparation going on in heaven, God wanted his people on earth to prepare as well. Now, as they started to see the full context now of the first angel's message, previously they had only seen the first, sorry, the first angel's message in the context of second coming, 1844. Now they also started to see that the first angel's message also speaks about the Sabbath, where it says, worship him who made the heaven and the earth, which is a quotation from commandment number four. They started to see the Sabbath. They also started to see health reform. Where's health reform in the first angel's message? Anybody? Which phrase is health reform? 
or can we put health reform in? Give glory to God. You can put a lot of things in there. And one of the things you can put in there is the health message. Because 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, in whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do. Now that covers a lot. That covers how you get dressed in the morning. That covers how you do whatever. In whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so they started to see the Sabbath. They started to see the health reform message as well. Um, you know, it's interesting that the health vision that Ellen White had was not given until 1864. Importantly, it was the first vision she had after our church was incorporated in 1863. But she got that vision in 1864. So it was a, a progression God was teaching his people. They learned the Sabbath. They learned health reform as well. Okay? Later on. So, if we're going to look at a time frame, we'd say this. The first message was preached by William Miller, and I should say and associates, even though they didn't know they were associates. But it was preached by William Miller and other preachers in the 1830s, reaching a climax in 1844. Question, is this message still being given, yes or no? Yes or no? It is still being given. When will this message of the first angel cease to be present truth? When? When Jesus comes, or we could say the close of probation. So this message will not cease to be present truth until the very end. The very, very end. Now, the second angel was preached in the summer of 1844. Question, is the second angel's message still true? Yes or no? Is Babylon still fallen? Does it still need to be preached? Yes or no? Do people like preaching the second angel's message today? Yes or no? No, they don't. Because we live in a society that increasingly doesn't like to say bad things about other people. True? Can't say bad things about other people. We all have to get on, even if we disagree. It's harder. I mean, I've been as an Adventist preacher to places where I've done an evangelistic campaign, and the administration has requested me, on arrival, do not preach this, do not preach this, and do not preach this. Like, don't preach on spirit prophecy. Don't preach on the mark of the beast. And don't preach on this. Right. <laughs> what do you invite me to do then? You do the rest. Like, <laughs> I'm like, no. We'll preach all of it, you know? Because we believe the message is beautiful in its entirety. The second angel, 1844, still is present truth. The third, third, sorry, the third angel's message, it, my pronunciation gets a little bit off these days. You know, it's amazing how little things make a big difference. Let me tell you a story, side note. This tooth here and this tooth here are not real. They're crowns. When I was 14 years old, I was riding my bike, and I fixed my bike while I was riding it. Stupid thing to do. My hand went into the wheel, came round the wheel, hit the fork, stopped the bike, the bike went over, and I landed on my face. Cut my lip, bruised my face, and chipped my front two teeth. Little chip. So the dentist, when I was 14, put a little chip on my tooth and made it complete. When I was 18, that chip broke off and he had to put a crown on. So he ground the tooth down to a stump and put a crown on both these front two teeth. Now that was fine from the age of 18. When I was about 22, I had to get a root canal through the crown into the root and it was very painful. But the crown was fine from age of 18 until the age of 36, this year, a month ago, I was sitting in my study, eating something, and I heard a crack in my front. I was like, oh no. I think my tooth has gone. I went into the bathroom to look at it. It looked fine, but I knew it wasn't quite fine. And that evening when I was eating my supper, and I was being very careful to put the food like in the sides, my front tooth fell out. The crown and the stump just snapped off. 
This was Friday night. Dentist closed Friday night. I had a big youth day to preach at on Sabbath. What do you do if you have no front tooth? Do you preach? Like, like can you call up the church and say, I can't preach because I have no tooth? Like, I mean, can you do that? I mean, I really, I didn't want to preach. I mean, as a preacher, you're, everyone's looking at you, and it's not the side tooth, it's the front tooth. And it's a youth day, and they all laugh, and they all got Facebook and Instagram, and they're going to take pictures and stick it online, and I don't want that to happen, you know? And so I'm like, I don't want to do it, so I call up the person, and if I, if I had been smart, I could have just told them that I had a medical emergency, and I wasn't able to come. Because if you're vague, then they can't really question you. But when I told them the details, they're like, what? You better come. Who cares? It's only a tooth. Oh, man. I couldn't get to a dentist. And, and, you, and then they said, oh, there's an emergency dentist you can go to. So I have an ethical debate. Do I pay money to go to the dentist on Sabbath so I can preach on Sabbath? You know? Is that right for me to pay to fix my tooth on Sabbath so I can then preach the Bible on Sabbath? Hmm? It can wait, but the problem is, if you have no front tooth and you're used to having a front tooth, you have a really bad lisp. I couldn't say my S's, I couldn't say my F's at all. A complete lisp. So I'm really uncomfortable that I can't, I look wrong, and now I can't even speak properly either. It's like, you know? <laughs> so I'm driving to church with no front tooth. And the worst part of it is, my wife was in hysterics the whole time. She just thought it was funny. Just, it was just funny, funny, funny. No tooth. So on the way to church, I, I get the tooth back out again, and I wedged it back in, stuck it back in. And then it fell out again, and I stuck it back in again, and it stayed. And I get to church, and I'm greeting people when I'm going in, and everything's fine. And I was like, do I take the tooth out, or do I risk the tooth dropping while I'm preaching? <laughs> you know? Like, what do you do? And so, like... Anyway, I shouldn't be telling you this because I'm taking up my time. But <laughs> I've started the story, so I've got to finish it. So, and even during the special item that my wife sang, my tooth, which had been fine for three hours, popped out. I was like, oh, no. So I pushed it back in. So I start the sermon, and I thought, I better tell them the story before the sermon in case it falls out. So I told them the whole story like I'm telling you now. And I said, I've had this debate. Do I pull it out now? Or do I just try and preach with it, risking it might fall during the sermon? And three quarters of the church said, leave it in. <laughs> we don't want to see you in no tooth. And a few people said, take it out, take it out. Anyway, I left it in. So for the introduction of the sermon, and I was speaking really slowly. My translators would have loved it. Just going, the Bible said, and I was really slow. And then after about five minutes, without any warning, my tooth dropped on the pulpit. I was like, oh, Lord, give me strength. So I just bowed my head and prayed and then just got no tooth now, so I just better preach. And, and I just preached. And like, but like the whole time I'm really conscious and I'm, I don't want to look at, you know, it's, it's, oh, it, was the, it was the hardest sermon I've ever preached. Like I felt... Like, I've been preaching for 10 years. I felt in that sermon as if I was like a complete rookie again. Like first sermon. Like, like I had this pounding headache. My knees were shaking. I was sweating all over. It was probably a good experience for me. And I tell that to tell you because then on Monday I got a new tooth. This is a new crown that they put in. But I still find, you probably don't catch, I still find, and it's amazing, little things make big differences. The tooth is probably a micromillimeter different to the previous one. Micromillimeter. But I still have, I'm having these now to relearn to enunciate certain words, which is quite frustrating to me when I'm up here. Anyway, I just, I just told you the whole reason why I didn't pronounce the word properly. Because <laughs> it was bothering me. But um, little things make big difference. Anyway, third message. We'll get through this presentation and then I'll let you out for a break. Um, it should finish it shortly. Began to be preached after the disappointment. Is it still present truth? The third message? Yes. Now, these three messages are a platform that goes through till Jesus comes. It's not something that has happened. 
but they still happen and go beyond. Now, the difference is this. Not all messages in the Bible last beyond their time frame. They have an expiry date. For example, Noah's message ceased to be present truth when he entered into the ark. Now, we can still read Noah today. I think Jason's going to be preaching on Noah tomorrow morning. We can still read the book of Noah today. We can still gain insight from the book of Noah. But that message we get application from, but it's not for our time. Does that make sense? The three angels' message are different, though. They were true in 1844, but they are still true today. And if, God forbid, the world lasts another 100 years, they will still be true in 100 years. They will cease to be present truth when probation closes, when Jesus comes. So it is the message for us to preach as Seventh-day Adventists. 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 Now, chronologically, they were preached in the beginning. The message was preached chronologically in the beginning, but they increase in power and they increase in application as the time goes on. We still preach the first angels, we still preach the second, and we still preach the third. Now, it doesn't mean that every time we preach them now, they have to be in chronological order. We could pull a message here, pull a message there. But we should still preach them with greater power and greater application. We should not say, well, my parents preached the three angels' message. I want something new. No, there still is fresh bread to be found there. The first angel's message points to a particular time, 1844. It lasts a lot more than one minute or one day. The work is not over yet. We are living in the judgment hour, and he's looking for a people who will develop a character to pass, so to speak, the judgment. The second angel's message, has Babylon's fall been completed, yes or no? Not yet. The fall of Babylon will be complete, as we'll see, when the image to the beast is made. That's the completion of the fall of Babylon in its fullness when church and state unites to enforce religious practice. Now, it was the rejection of the first angels that made this one necessary. Okay? Now, the second angels find its complete fulfillment in the time to come, in the time of complete apostasy in the popular churches when the image to the beast is formed. Therefore, the third angel's message warns against this. You see, that makes sense. The second angel's complete when church and state unite, the image, which is the image to the beast, church and state unite, enforcing religious practice. Therefore, the third angel's message warns against that. The image to the beast and the fall of Babylon, they come together. We're going to cover these points in more detail, so I'm just going through them a bit quicker. The image to the beast is formed in the USA, right first, but when America coughs, the rest of the world sneezes, or however that phrase goes. The focal point, wrong button, the focal point is the Sunday law. This is also called the mark in prophecy. You hear about the mark of the beast? It's the Sunday law. Keyword, law. Mark of the beast is not Sunday, strictly speaking. It's, well, it is and it isn't. It's kind of like technicality. The time has not yet come. No one receives the mark of the beast until the Sunday law has passed. Okay? A few more slides. If any man worships the beast in his image, there is no image yet today, but this will be when church and state unite. They will unite over the Sunday law. Now, this is why, this is why people like to study American politics as Adventists. Because what happens there has a ramification for our beliefs prophetically. The fall of Babylon is complete when the USA and churches, its churches unite with the papacy in the enforcement of a false Sabbath. This is when it takes place. The third angel's message deals with three things. The fall of Babylon the setting up of the image, and the enforcement of the mark. And the punishment is the wrath of God, which is still in the future. Amen? We have not yet received the wrath of God, or it's not yet being poured out. There is still mercy, there is still time for people to hear the message. We should give the message. Why? Because those that don't accept the message receive the wrath of God. 
You know, sometimes people say, well, you shouldn't be preaching about all these end-time events because it's not loving. If someone is going to get the wrath of God poured on them and you can help them stop getting the wrath of God poured on them, that's love. Amen? Anyway, let's pray. We'll close this presentation. We'll take a 15-minute break and then we'll come back. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you, Lord, that we have a commission to preach the everlasting gospel messages to the world at this time. I pray that you would bless each one of us. Lord, give us understanding of these messages, but Lord, more importantly, give us an experience with these messages. Lord, we thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.